VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with David when you give him a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM. That's 8626. Well, an absolutely spectacular morning here in the metro region. Many people uh, got up early enough, I think, and I saw a few pictures kicking around, to take in the total lunar eclipse that happened this morning between 6.15 and 6.45. So, basically, it's when you have the sun and the moon and the earth lining up. The earth's shadow is cast over the moon. The moon then turns red, referred to as the blood moon. And it's really quite spectacular. So for folks who took a gaze to the west, maybe had a chance to see it if it wasn't too cloudy where you are. I watched a little bit about uh, NASA's website. They had a live stream, and it's just fascinating to listen to the folks who are doing the commentary. So passionate and so excited about this total lunar eclipse, but it was quite spectacular. And almost all the leaves are down. One more swipe, and I think I've got it handled for the year. All right, a couple of interesting notes. It was the day in 1793 that the French Revolutionary government opened up the Louvre to the public as a museum. If you've ever had a chance to go there, you know how incredible that is. I want to speak to very quickly one of the most fascinating characters in sporting history, certainly in baseball history, and that's the legend Yogi Berra. So it was today in 1951 that Yogi Berra won his first of three MVP awards. 18-time All-Star, went to the World Series 14 times, won 10 times. But of course, Yogi Berra's exploits on the field are kind of left behind a little bit, given all his contribution to the American language. You know, the colloquial expressions that he put forward, very, most of them made no sense, but had a little ring of truth in them. And that's what he's best known for. Here's a couple of the famous Berra-isms or Yogi-isms. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) You can observe a lot just by watching, says Yogi Berra, and one that people still use today a lot. It ain't over till it's over. And a great one referring to restaurants, it says, no one goes there nowadays, it's too crowded. (laughs) Yogi Berra, absolutely brilliant stuff. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore, right? Baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. Yogi Berra, first MVP of three today in 51. All right, I guess we got to start with the unbelievable news in the world of fuels. And another adjustment made by the PUB, this time diesel. You got to ask yourself, where does this end, right? So diesel overnight up 31 cents a liter. That's 58 cents increase in three days, given the massive bump we saw again on Saturday. So paying in excess of $3 a liter. Get this with stove oil in Labrador, Lab West Churchill Falls, up 34.21 cents, 65.3 cents per liter since Friday. So, look, we know that the struggle is absolutely real, and whether it be a shortage in the ultra-low sulfur kerosene impacting stove oils and the price of diesel, we're at a point now, where I guess we've been there for a little while, but we're at a point now where governments have to ask themselves some serious questions. The concept that when people make uh, comments like this is we're going to freeze to death. There's some truth to that. You know, I see people throwing around on social media just how much they paid for, for instance, 500 liters of home heating fuels. 
it is out of reach for so many people. Now, I've also heard a report today that someone got their $500 check in the inflation uh, protection package from the government. Yeah, what does that get you? I mean, it's a good thing, and some people will absolutely welcome the $500, but it is absolutely time on home heating fuels and diesel, and I know they've cut half of the provincial gas tax, it may indeed be time, even though the government is not in a great shape on the revenue side, debt and deficit, but with the creation of a futures fund in extraordinary circumstances, it might absolutely be time for the government to take taxes off of the fuels for six months to get us through the winter so that hopefully whatever shortage in this ultra-low sulfur uh, kerosene is and the impact it has on stove oils and with diesel, we're at an absolute and crisis and crunch point. We've got to do something. I don't know how it's going to be manageable with prices in the grocery store already where they are. And yes, we know the grocery stores, Loblaws, for instance, making a million dollars more per day than they were this time last year. I know their input costs are also up, but... Government has to have a serious conversation amongst themselves, the 40 elected members, to back the taxes of diesel and home heating fuels for the winter. Because when people say we're going to freeze to death, for some people out there, that's the absolute reality. The absolute reality. You know, for some, you might be able to scrounge up some money every couple of weeks, every month, to put a couple of hundred liters back into the uh, fuel tank. But then there's minimum delivery requirements. And that's mostly because the big oil companies, home heating oil companies, they use subcontractors to drive the trucks and deliver the fuel. And they, of course, don't want to go out and just put in 50 liters. They want to go out and make it worth their while to stop at your home. I get that. But back the taxes off. I'd, I'd like to see the Department of Finance just as an exercise with the anticipated sales, and we've got historical data that points to how much gas and diesel and stove oils and furnace oils are purchased over the winter months in this province. Give us an idea just how much revenue would be lost to the government if they backed the taxes away for the winter. If there was a one-time contribution to the Futures Fund of $50 million based on unanticipated uh, hikes in oil revenue and royalties, corporate and individual taxes, would the $50 million cover it? I would suggest absolutely would. So maybe, just maybe, with the extraordinary circumstances that people are facing here, they might have to do this. What do you think? Could look forward to your call on that particular issue. But diesel over three bucks a litre, 58 cent hike in the last three days. Man. Speaking of the grocery stores. There might be something more to see here when Empire Company, which owns Sobeys and Safeway, what else do they have, uh, Lawton's, IGA, Farm Boy, Foodland, Freshco, they are reporting an information technology systems issue. It's a big problem for the pharmacies that they own and operate, so you might be able to show up with the bottling at a few days' worth while they try to get through this particular issue. So what is an information technology systems issue? Because yesterday we also heard that Maple Leaf Foods announced that they suffered a cybersecurity incident. They were cyber attacked much like the Meditech system, which we still don't know much about in this province. You know, we saw an expanded number of people that would have been impacted when whoever hacked in, whether it be ransomware or otherwise. And we know that this is happening more and more often. Big corporations, health authorities, you and me, we're at heightened risk for cyber attack to happen where you live, where you work. But for, for Solby's, it just kind of makes you feel like there's something more to see here. A fellow that we've referred to and spoke with on this program a few times in the past, his name is Dr. Sylvain Chalabois. He's the director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab at uh, Dalhousie University. He says that the lack of public information coming from Empire makes him suspect the issue is more significant and that simple information technology problem. So 
you know, what would be the end result if people believe that there's more to see here? Does that change your shopping behavior? Like, does a cyber attack include knowing how I paid for my groceries yesterday at Howley States and what I used? and the information therein. So Dr. Charlebois thinks there might be more to it. And yes, it might be helpful to know exactly what were the gaps in our protections at Meditech. Of course, that's the data system inside the healthcare authorities. So have they been cleaned up? Were there any red flags that were brought forward and the work was not done to enhance protections inside of Meditech? Because we really don't know anything more about it than we did just weeks and days after it happened. And speaking of data protection in the world of health, we know that the health ministers across the country, whether it be in the provinces or territories, are calling on the federal government to increase the federal health care transfer dollar. Right now, it's about 22% of spending across the country is backstopped by the federal government in said transfer dollars. The feds say they're now willing to increase the health care transfer money. The provinces and territories are united in saying it has to be a maintained, stable 35% contribution from the federal government. As much as the feds like to say that health care is a provincial, uh, pardon me, a provincial jurisdiction, and they're right, but the amount of money we're spending, and I think it's safe to say that obviously money's not the issue in our universal health care delivery model that we have. Work has to be done to figure out how we get better positive health care outcomes versus simply relying on spending more and more money and pretending that's getting us where we need to be. But the Fed say they're ready to step up and put more money forward. But what they say is they, the provinces and the territories must commit to using common health indicators. Not really exactly sure what that might be. Is that the social determinants of health? I don't know. If so, that's pretty broad. And to build, get this, a world-class health data system for the country. Maybe the federal government can take it upon themselves to build a world-class health data system for the country, as opposed to the provinces and the disjointed nature of provincial relations and with the, the territories. It seems to me there's a dog's breakfast, dog's breakfast being ordered up here, but the good news is the feds say they will indeed increase the transfer money to the provinces. And this has been a long time coming, but it looks like sometime this month there will be day surgery available for those of you getting a hip or knee replacement. Exactly when? We're not 100% sure, but that is apparently the news that we've been told. For the parents of young children, my boys are in their 20s, so I haven't experienced this, but I get repeated pictures of shelves at pharmacies with the shortage of children's cold and flu medicines the Tylenols of the world and what have you. Then we know a story nationwide, there's a shortage of one of the key antibiotics used to treat bacterial infections in children, amoxicillin is what it's called. But if you're a parent of a child and you've been looking for these medicines, you know, show me, tell me, call me. In addition to that, with the spike we're seeing across the country, certainly in Ontario, quite dire, is the spike of respiratory illnesses in children and the numbers being admitted to hospital. Maybe some of that is because the symptoms have worsened because you're unable to treat them at home with some of these over-the-counter medications. So I do need some support from parents of young children to tell me what you're seeing, where you live, and the pharmacies that you're a patron of. Okay. This story, i tell you what, this story is way bigger than I think we understand at this moment in time. And it all stems from the Diamond family in Catalina. So this is about people living in a home that's on Crown land. They thought they owned it. It might have been the great-great-grandfather first settled on the land and then passed it on to generation to generation, been subdivided between the sons and the daughters. And now when people go to sell, they find out it's on Crown land and consequently can't sell. 
There is a map on the province's government website about what Crown land is there, and you might be able to get close enough to realize that you might be living on Crown land. So I think some of this will be further understood and further exacerbated when in certain parts of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, where people have settled for generations, and now maybe because of your age, or maybe simply wanting to downsize based on the cost of living, people are going to be more and more common. The story will become more and more common to find out you're sitting on Crown land. So you'll go through the, the quieting of titles process to be able to deal with the Crown land matter, or pardon me, to deal with a sale of your own home. Then when you find out it's on Crown land, you have got a long, arduous, costly process ahead of you. There was a uh, Crown Land review done back in 2015. Members of the opposition are calling on government to make some required adjustments here because this story is going to be bigger and impact more and more people uh, as the years go by. And I think some of that just goes hand in hand with the fact that more older Newfoundlanders and Labradorians might be simply thinking about downsizing out of their current home. The family's moved away. And of course we know there was very, very common to have big families. And so for just mom and dad or nan and pop continuing to live in the family home, maybe just simply downsizing, just like these folks, the Diamonds, although what they were doing was there was a health-related matter. And so they found out that, uh-oh, we're stuck. And for 16 hours, they thought they were homeless, but the folks that purchased the home were apparently quite willing to work with them to get through this. In addition to finding out at the 11th hour they were, had a home on Crown Land, the entire time, for almost 40 years that they were living in the home, they were paying pop property taxes to Catalina. So nobody knew. And I think this story is going to be bigger and bigger, and there's a lot of people living on Crown land in this province. You've got to believe it to be true when you look at the map and the expanse of it. And speaking of, well, that's the story of living in your own home and wanting to sell it. The story coming from Happy Valley Goose Bay is not new, but apparently the residents there are fed up. This is regarding homelessness. So it's a problem wherever we're looking in the country. But in that particular community, there's some 80 transient folk living along the trail network. Now, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, and it's a wonder she still has a job as the commissioner, just put that out there. She was in Labrador for a fundraising ball. Okay. When the residents of the community are asking for more police presence, more patrols, to deal with public safety matters. Brenda Lucky and others at the RCMP are saying they don't want to criminalize the issue, whether it be based because of poverty, whether it's because of mental health issues, whether it's about addictions. You know, she's talking about the need for more focus on root causes and social services. She's not wrong, but those systemic issues, those root cause issues, they take time to address. All the while, these 80 people may indeed be a, a trouble for themselves and or other members of the community, as reported by so many residents in Happy Valley Goose Bay. So while the commissioner is right to say, well, we don't want to criminalize things, what we need to do is for the public to be safe. And if that's with increased patrols, the more that you see police officers, the less likely you are to commit a crime, of course. So you have to start at the beginning. Protect the public. Protect the public, and all the while, the province has to, and they already have started working on this, and there's been a committee struck to work on this issue. We can deal with all the root cause issues at the exact same time while the police do what they're there to do, to protect and serve. So I know the resources are stretched thin in this province regarding the RCMP presence, but the folks in Happy Valley Goose Bay and other parts of the province that are dealing with homelessness issues, 
They're not wrong in calling for your presence and increased patrols so that the public can indeed feel and be safe if you want to take it on, especially if you're up on Happy Valley Goose Bay. Please do indeed. Give us a call. Let us know what you see and what's going on. Okay, so it looks like the opposition has found what I guess they're considering is a soft spot or a sweet spot in holding government to account. And this is all about who knew what when as it pertains to the lift of the uh, ban on wind projects after a cabinet meeting in March, the 24th of March, that lasted one hour, and then a couple of weeks later, the moratorium on wind was lifted. Barry Petten in particular is asking the question about was the wind issue the subject of that particular meeting? And making direct reference to former chair of the board at Nalcor and a man who was sitting on the 2041 Churchill River analysis team, he resigned his job. And, of course, he's on the board of World Energy GH2. So they're doing their very best to connect dots. But what we don't begrudge anyone who's in an opposition seat is to ask important questions. Who knew what when? So the insinuation from opposition members is that Mr. Paddock was given a heads up. The premier says it's simply not true. But these types of things, when we talk about, you know, an ethics commissioner and the role similar to, like, the auditor general would play, whether we, be, whether we start with campaign finance reform, which is so long overdue, it's extremely frustrating to know that we are still where we are with campaign finance reform, or the lack thereof, and yes, the establishment of an ethics commissioner, whatever it takes. And this is not just about Premier Andrew Fury. This is about how government functions. The cynicism that is rampant amongst the general public, let's put the tools in place, as much as it's a shame that we have to go down these paths, but we do have to go down these paths. So the who knew what when? They're fair questions. And it all comes back to, you know, this all gets triggered by the, the, the fishing trip, doesn't it? My, on my time, on my dime, that's the Premier's go-to line on this front. I just wonder, if, he, if there's receipts available, what does this do to temper the story? It doesn't do away with the who knew what when regarding the lift of the, the ban on wind-related projects, but... If you table them, does that at least take the temperature down a little bit if you're the Liberal Party of Newfoundland and Labrador, if you're Premier Fury, if you're John Risley, if you're Brendan Paddock? Because it's only going to grow from here. That's just the nature of the beast in politics. It's only going to get bigger and louder. And the Premier does have some cards to play if he'd like for these stories to be not as intensified and as hot as they are at the moment, but if you want to tackle it, we can absolutely do it. And it is uh, today, the 8th of November, is National Indigenous Remembrance Day. Many Indigenous members of the country have indeed fought with valor, representing Canada and or Newfoundland and Labrador prior to our uh, confederation. So for those celebrating out there and the events that are taking place, if you want to tell us where they are, what you're doing, what you're thinking about on this reflective day, we're happy to take that call as well. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. My fave is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like D does. D has this morning. Money spent in the justice system. We'll find out about that right after this. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number two. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I, I enjoy your show very much. Great. Thank yeah, you. Uh, I don't get the call very often because I'm not uh, to, to take the two call because I'd express certain thoughts and what have you. No worries. Yes. Yes, I I like to I like to ch- uh, to elaborate on uh, dating and uh, uh, loneliness a little bit. If that's okay. Perfectly fine and, with me. Go ahead. And, and yes, I I have to uh, a little story to tell. Just 
just to help to get my point across, if that's okay. Yes, sir. Okay. I met this woman on this particular dating site, and uh, we did. Uh, we also did see each other in public in this particular bar. And uh, we started chatting and then whatever. And, uh, you know, we probably could have touched base that night that we saw each other at Spur, but I was chatting with someone else and whatever reason. Anyway, we started chatting and uh, everything was going smooth, going the best kind and getting to know each other and, and stuff, right? Telling each other things about ourselves. So yeah, whatever. I think we, we, uh, we get the process. Yeah, bit of courting. Yeah. And uh, even got past the fact that, uh, well, I have uh, eyesight issues. I don't drive, right? Okay. And uh, she was okay with it. She, she was seemed to be understanding, and and I suppose sometimes a, a, a little stutter in my voice or whatever. She it was seemed very patient with phone calls too, right? And uh, chat and phone calls. Everything was this kind until this day. She just. So it's uh, Ron. Uh, I think we better slow down. She said, uh, uh, "I'm not really re- ready for a relationship." I said, "Well, that's fine. I backed off. I done what I thought what I was supposed to do, and whatever." And uh, she said, "But uh, I still like to meet you and whatever." So uh, I said, "Just we go on a coffee date." And we met at this particular uh, coffee shop and. We checked for a couple of hours. Our coffee's even got cold. <laughs> and uh, and then I really thought we were getting somewhere process, you know. And Well, we were all, all the chatting and phone calls. Well, this was going on for about three weeks, eh? And uh, so it wasn't enough uh, to say, well, I could come out and say, well, I love you to her. But uh, it, was, it was enough to have feelings there, you know? I can understand that. And okay. so where are we now? Where are we? Yeah, what's the, the relationship with this woman? Um, well, I'll get to that now. Okay. Anyway, uh, we later text after that coffee date, and uh, she says, uh, Ron, she said, uh, I don't really think I'm ready for this. So I said, well, okay. I said, that's all I can do, and I backed off. But I took a couple of days, Patty, to, to, to uh, think about it, and... And, uh, you know, and get myself sorted out and get a little confused there and whatever, right? So uh, so I text her back. I said, uh, I said, you know, uh, I think really think that you're worth waiting for. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to be around the weekend and stuff. If you happen to see me, uh, it'll be just a friendly hello and I'll leave you alone and whatever and um, uh, you know and you take all the time you need to sort things out for yourself she texts me back and this I tell you this really hit me like a ton of bricks she said well she said uh, I uh, I've been seeing this guy and uh, I should have told you she said and uh, uh, should have told you and uh, and been out on several dates and I was dumbfounded. I was, you know, and, you know, really hurt, let me tell you. Now. Well, I mean, did you think that you had an exclusive thing going with this lady? What do you mean? Did you think I, that you were the only man in her life? Uh, 
No, but she, well, I understood uh, uh, that she recently come out of a relationship, like something like five or six months or something, an abusive relationship, and, and she, you know, she... And I can tell that your your heart has taken a knock here, and I don't want yep. to rush you along that you had the the want to get on the show. So, so where are we now? I hate to go right to the end of the story, but where are we? What's going on in your world? Do you have a relationship with this woman? If not, no. what happened? So no. just simply because she was seeing the no. other man, she picked the other fellow over you, unfortunately. Yes. Is that as simple as that? Well, uh, it do hurt, but you know, I, I just thought that my story should be should be told. And now, there's now one day you, uh, I think you mentioned one of your preambles about uh, suicide and stuff, right? But no, I don't want to talk about that suicide, whatever. You, but could it because uh, uh, lots of men uh, that committed suicide and whatever, but could it be? Could loneliness be be a part of a lot of that for for, for what happened? To it's them? hard to know how and why people make such an extraordinary decision to yes. die by suicide. It could be money. It could be addictions. It could be loneliness. It could be a combination of all of the the obvious inputs or factors that would make people. You know, it could be a mental health related matter. It's just hard to say exactly what might uh, lead to that type of decision. But we do know across the country, somewhere between seventy five and eighty percent of suicides are by men. So that's a big big right. number and to understand it I think is important but loneliness if that's the simple question is could loneliness be a reason maybe I, yeah. I suppose so I mean do you feel that way today Rob? No, I, no I, I certainly don't feel that way I'm a bit of a musician I put a lot of time practicing guitar accordion and stuff right uh, like you know like I have uh, barriers against me like uh like I mentioned earlier, hard to express myself, and some women will look at that. Oh, well, you can't talk. He's whatever, and uh, you know. In fact, I can't drive because of my eyesight, right? And uh, uh, there are lots of people who just won't have anything to do with you because some of those barriers or whatever. They don't understand or respect you or what. I get that. Let me put this out there. And this is not in an effort to so-called make you feel better. But... Most people, regardless of the brave face they put up, most people, including me, have a variety of insecurities that makes it difficult to meet people, to speak with people, to go on dates, to speak in public. You know, I think that's a really normal thing, to be honest. So many people out there, though, they can they can behave and act like the, the world is their oyster and nothing gets them down and they're happy-go-lucky and carefree and everything's good in their world and they're so self-confident. But a lot of that is just a... It's a facade. It's what people do to not reveal their insecurities. And I think men are really bad for that, uh, personally. But that's, I mean, I'll admit my, my shortcomings are absolutely real. I feel it. So I don't, you're not alone on that front. No. You were speaking no. about loneliness, but I guarantee you you're not alone when you have your own insecurities and wondering, you know, why is it that you're unable to, say, for instance, close the deal with this lady, even though that's not the right phrase. Uh, you weren't able to yeah. establish a relationship with this woman. But just before we run out of time, give the folks your, your final thoughts before we say goodbye this morning, Ron. Okay, uh, well, you know, uh, yes, uh, uh, yes, uh, oh, the relationship is over with that woman. Uh, my final touch, I wonder how many men uh, is, is, is uh, gone through that. You know, like, like, I believe in equality of, 
for men and women. I don't condone uh, abuse and... Of course not. No, that's not what we're talking like, about, though, yeah. Right? And, yeah. you know, like... It's like, I just... You know, uh, I like their I like their other men calling in on your show and just just to see what they think and whatever. They're like, welcome to do it. Like, the topics are wide open yeah. here, Ron. I wish you well, and you know, okay. hopefully, the fact that you understand, I hope you understand that the insecurity thing. That's a real. It's real for I'm going to say just about every single person listening to the program. So maybe back to that particular watering hole and strike up the next conversation. And as they say. I was going to say something as cavalier as there's more fish in the sea, but there is. So yes. I, I wish you nothing but the very best, Ron. Thanks for the call this morning. Take yes. good care. Yes. Yes, uh, Patty, like, like I really like to meet somebody. and well, uh, you know, go give it a shot, man. So, yeah. All right, you have a good day. You Thank too. Thank you for listening. And no problem. Okay. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. That might be our first call along those lines, but hey, you know, summary before we get to the break, we come back to talk with uh, Jeff and Nick. His... It's very real. I mean, the suicide numbers that he made mention of, those are staggering numbers that we need to have a better understanding of. But look, I know full well that I've got a handful of insecurities that you have to navigate and manage every day. And I'm sure Dave feels the same way. And I would imagine most of you in our quiet, honest moments feel the same way too. Go get them, Ron. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking Crown Land and the price of diesel. Ugh, don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three, Jeff, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it. Um, Patty, I know uh, many people up at the Confederation Building uh, tune in and uh, report on public sentiment, so I'm just going to make mention of those folks to sharpen your pencils there now and get ready for your briefing note that you'll move up the line. But, uh, Patty, um, in your preamble this morning, uh, you mentioned two words, and one was cynicism and one was shame. And you had mentioned that in relation to, um, I guess, the question surrounding the um, uh, the wind power project. Um, earlier, you had mention of a topical story about a senior citizen couple, the Diamonds, I believe. So I just want to point out your term, cynicism and shame. There's a direct line to be drawn between both of those stories. So on the one hand, you will have the provincial government bending over backwards and moving heaven and earth to free up thousands of acres of crown land for well-connected and powerful interests. And you juxtapose that with a senior citizen couple who have spent their life paying taxes and being, you know, upstanding citizens. And in their time of need now, with one of these people uh, terminally ill, they're looking to free up some cash and get somewhere to, you know, live out the rest of of their lives in comfort. And every obstacle and roadblock is being put up in front of them. So sharpen up the pencils there up on the hill. And at least one citizen in this province thinks that that is nothing less than shameful, pitiful, and disgusting. 
So there, that's my message, Patty. And you can get the folks to send it up the line. But I strongly suspect that they wouldn't really give a you-know-what. But anyway, that's my two cents worth, uh, Patty. I pre- appreciate you sharing them, Gio. Keep the riffs hey, coming, too. Alrighty. Okay, buddy. Bye bye. Yeah, you know, to deal with it as an individual story and issue is one thing. But I think you're gonna see a bit of a groundswell of these types of stories. I mean, we hear it all the time. More and more people in maybe some smaller communities thinking about moving closer to where their sons and daughters and grandchildren are, or for healthcare-related matters, or simply wanting to downsize. And it's not just if you have a home on a piece of crown land. You know, you've got this swath of land that you've had in the family, maybe thinking you can monetize that upon your retirement, and then lo and behold, you go to sell it, and it's not even yours. So I, you know, that story's something, something more to that. So line six, Nick, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, uh, just going to talk about inflation and, uh, you know, the way everything's going. Uh, if our governments are so inclined to uh, try to help control inflation, maybe uh, on the federal level, uh, Seamus Reagan or someone could have probably voice in on this, and on our provincial levels with the uh, Fury government, uh, drop all the taxes on all the fuels, federal and provincial. I mean, that'll give a big break to all the trucking companies, um, ferries, so forth, and even the consumer. I mean, it's getting to the point now that uh, our goods are going to be so high that uh, it's going to be unreal. Like, everything is just going to go skyrocket, and no one's going to be able to afford nothing. Well, I, I mean, I said the exact same thing off the top of the program today. The, you know, certainly it's a concern regarding diesel and the multiplier effect that costly diesel has for the end consumer. I think the biggest one right at this moment, here we are just about on the verge of winter, is any of the taxes on home heating fuels. It's just out of whack. And, you know, when someone says something as dire as, I'm going to freeze to death, then that might have more truth than in years past where, you know, we say those things to make a point, right? We embellish an issue just to try to drive home a a point that we're attempting to make. But you see the numbers to get whatever in your tank and the costs associated with it, it's not necessarily manageable for so many people. I mean, we've been having this conversation for years. If you were struggling in 2018 with the prices then, and that's everything, whether it be your hydro bill, your oil bill, your home heating fuels, your stove oils, gasoline or diesel, then if that was a struggle in 18, well, buddy, you must be up against it pretty bad now. Well, you go figure this one. Look at all the workers going back and forth the highway and uh, just going out to the big projects and stuff like Come By Chance and Bull Arm and so forth, back and forth every day. You're looking at about a fuel bill for these people, including myself, around four to 500 bucks a week. I mean, where's the, where's this going to stop? It's going to stop to the point where we can't afford to go over the highway no more to go to work. Do you get a travel uh, allowance? Uh, every day. Yeah, so uh, the question I was going to ask is, oh, you know, stop bellyaching because you get an allowance. I was wondering, has the allowance increased uh, commensurate with the increase in price? That was the point I was going to make. No, it hasn't. Okay. And at the same time, I mean, everybody says, you know, oh, well, you're getting this amount of money and uh, that covers your gas. But uh, you got to do your upkeep in your vehicle, your insurance, your uh, tires, your general maintenance. And no, it doesn't cover a lot. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, uh, it makes you wonder, like, is it even worth going out there anymore? Because uh, the fuel is going through the roof and gas is going to be next, I imagine. But I'm assuming that uh, diesel is going to be well over $4 a litre by the end of December. That's my opinion. Yeah, I've seen a couple of uh, people who are 
in the industry talking about 350 I don't know about four bucks I sure hope you're wrong on the four dollar number because that just would be devastating uh, I would imagine the, the concept of carpooling is pretty popular now given the prices people are paying for fuel and the upkeep of the rig people taking turns day after day or week after week is that a popular play uh yes and no we still got about uh, say good five six hundred vehicles out here every day wow yeah and uh you know again just comes to the point with all of our governments you know it's only a matter for like the winter months mainly and uh for now until everything comes to rest with inflation maybe our governments can give everybody in canada a break you know provincially and federally and this 500 dollars that fury government gave out that's just a drop in the bucket i mean some of these people that are out there heating their homes and stuff or take it for instance they should be getting a 1500 dollar a month credit not that this 500 this 500 is more of a slap in the face i, I look at it anyway it does it does no good because when the gas goes up and the diesel goes up you, know, you just lost that 500 you know it's and not you can't stretch it very far that's one thing for sure no it's more of a slap in the face, and like you almost like you you would swear there's a vote ballot on the end of that check. I mean, it's it's sinful. But Nick, I mean, let's let's be honest on that point. If you weren't planning on voting liberal, that money isn't changing your mind. I know people say you're buying votes, but you people are not surprised. bought off as quick. You think someone's going to vote liberal all of a sudden because they got one a one-time five hundred dollar check two years away from an election? A lot of low-income uh, people would. Yes, I really do. You'd be surprised, Patty. I guess and, I would. Uh, around the outskirts in the rural areas, I mean, they don't look at the person that's in uh, power, or the person that's going for voting half the time. They just they just vote color, and that's that's half the problem. Again, this problem, you know, stop voting color. Look at the person you're voting for. You know, he's going to make a change and make a difference in your uh, in your district. That's how I do it. And me personally, you know, all this thing, all these things about uh, people like Andrew Fury going out and. Uh, running for different uh, districts like Elton Cornerbrook area and Salt Lake Humber uh, it should be allowed unless you live there well he ran out there to get a seat yeah I understand that that was a by-election you should not be allowed you should the person that runs for that seat should have to be residing in that neighborhood or in that area within the so far of that neighbor that area like that's living in St. John's and putting a remote office out there that does no good for those people out there like that and that's my opinion anyway but like I said that's that should be something maybe down the road they'll look into you know make people run and stay in their uh, their writings their districts well of course and if he didn't take a shot at the first available seat the criticism will be we can't have a premier without a seat in the house of assembly right there's a bit of damned if you do on that one (laughs) what he he can wait there's other people besides him Okay. Appreciate the time, Nick. Good luck out there. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Very quickly before the break, and Charlie on the doctor shortage, and this is from a mother of a young child, and uh, the mention of the shortage on the shelves of children's flu and cough medicine or, yeah, cold medicine. And so this is exactly right, and I should have said it off the top. Uh, She says, da-da-da. Uh, also found some empty shelves when I went looking recently. Spoke with the pharmacist and they helped me find an alternative that was suitable for my child. Would recommend people chat with their pharmacist. Absolutely right. Not only on finding alternatives if there's a lack of children's cold and flu medicine, but for everything health-related, pharmaceuticals, over-the-counter, or prescriptions, your pharmacist is there for exactly that. Appreciate that. Fine tidbit of advice. Uh, let's take that break, Charlie. Appreciate the patience. Uh, doctor shortage, and then we're talking justice. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, where am I going here, Dave? Five? Fine. Let's go. Line five, Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, Charlie. How about you? 
I'm doing okay. Could be doing a bit better. I do. I am under outside the grass. We do have a windy, nice, sunny day out, and we're living in the lovely province of Newfoundland, so things aren't that bad. That's the upside, yeah. I got a suggestion. I recently, like my family, I actually phoned you, oh, I'd say about a year ago, and you really helped me out. I was looking for a family doctor. I told you about my family's problems, and you guys came out and gave me a couple of numbers, and I was able to hook a doctor out of it, which was absolutely fantastic. Good. And unfortunately, I was supposed to have a doctor's appointment today, but our doctor phoned and basically told us that he's done. He's finished. He He's worn out. He's exhausted. He's a younger man. I'm 45 years old. He's younger than I am, and he's exhausted. Like, that will tell you right there. And, he, like, basically, he can't get ahead. I found 27 clinics this morning, and every one of them, no one's taken it. So I said, well, I'll phone my old buddy, Patty. Now, I'm not asking you to find me a doctor or nothing like that. But I, I do have a couple of ideas, I guess you could call it. Um, we're supposed to be getting this money from the government as $500 a person, am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I work a good job. I know a lot of people in Newfoundland are not as fortunate as some. I work a good job. I make a half-decent wage. My wife works a good job as well. But the thing is, you can have all the groceries in the world and have your bills paid and all that is great, but if you don't have a family doctor and something happens, it doesn't matter what you got. Now, the thing is, like I said, the government's going to give us money on GST, extra GST, God love Mr. Trudeau, and apparently um, we have an amount of money in Newfoundland, I guess the sugar tax is really doing a good job, because like all of a sudden everybody's getting $500 each. That's the only place I can figure it's coming from. Well, so, that pot of money, you know, the sugar tax hasn't been able to be in effect long enough to really bring that kind of money in. They say that the ability for the future fund and the ability for this inflation check, related check, is there was an uptick in production and, of course, the price of oil and an increase in corporate individual tax. That sugar tax, I don't know how that's going to work and how much money that's going to bring in. Well, I can imagine how much we're going to bring in, so we should be a half province pretty soon. <laughs> Anywho, getting back to my point, um, I was thinking, like like I said earlier, I'm doing pretty good. My wife is doing good. And I got groceries the whole nine years. I'd like to take my money and put it in the GoFundMe page. Like, And anybody out there listening that would want to do the same, like not set up by me, nothing like that, but set up by like an organization, take my money and donate it. Like the $500, the extra GST, that's almost $1,000. Now, if everybody that needs a doctor did it, Maybe we can buy a doctor. Maybe we can get like at least one doctor to come to Newfoundland to help us all out. Maybe we can get two. God only knows. And if the government sees us doing it, like because it seems like the thing is everybody's relying on the government. I'm tired of relying on the government. Well, they're not here to save your life, but there are certain things that we should really leave to government to take care of. There's a lot of regulatory issues and liability potentially and licensing and things that I'm sure most of us don't know how to navigate. But one of the problems, this is a strange thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
government really does quietly rely on individuals' horsepower and the volunteers and the charitable organizations and they're not-for-profits. If you backed all of that out, governments wouldn't be able to pick up the slack. So whether it be fundraisers for healthcare, whether it be uh, anybody who's working for a charity or a not-for-profit or a volunteer in any capacity, we're picking up a lot of government slack already. For some things, we just need the government to take care of it because we take care of a lot of societal issues on our own accord. And it's the right thing to do. And being a volunteer is absolutely an admirable thing to be. But for government, you know, the $500, if folks think they don't need it, and you I mean need is a an individual thing. I don't know everybody's personal circumstances. But if some of that money comes in today and you're really okay and you're able to make ends meet, and we know how many people aren't, Inside of my world, my sphere, we're going to donate most of the money that comes in our door to a food bank because I'm lucky enough to be okay, not great, (laughs) certainly not uh, flying high, but I'm able to make ends meet for now. But there's four of us in the house that work for a living. So we're going to, certainly my boys, they've been strongly encouraged to make that donation and they're going to. So I think that's the idea that a lot of people are leaning towards. If you can, you know, think about how you spend that money. It's not for me to tell you what to do. It's your money. but, you know, I think there's a lot of people considering maybe spreading the wealth around a little bit. Making one hundred fifteen dollars or $120,000 a year, you're still in pretty good shape. Now, it depends on your debt load and what kind of stuff you're financing. But, you know, anyway, I'm going to try to do my best with whatever money that I might consider to be extra, even though there's not really such a thing as extra. But anyway, last one to you. But in all fairness, though, Barry, like I said, like, it's one thing to, like, you know, like, I know there's a lot of people out there that are looking for food and, like, haven't got the light bill. And, like, the gent that said earlier, like, they're all, people are suffering. And I see it every day. Like, you go to the grocery store and you look at the elderly person in front of you with 15 chocolate bars in their, in their shopping cart. You're looking, why would they be buying 15 chocolate bars because they're on special? It's like, I guess she has a sweet tooth. I guess she got grandkids. No, the reason she's doing is because that's all she can afford to eat. Yeah, I don't know. That might be true for some. And, you know, I'm more careful than I ever have been when I shop. I do a lot of the grocery shopping in my house. I can't remember the last time I picked up a flyer. And, again, not because I throw caution to the wind. I do pay attention to prices and sales. But now I tell you right now, buddy, what used to be just shuffle the flyers from the bag off to the counter and for my wife to maybe have a flick through them while we're waiting for supper to cook, I'm looking at them. (laughs) And if it's on sale, that's what I'm getting. And I think that's a lot of people, that's how they're shopping today, th- these days, more and more than ever before. Uh, last word, Charlie, before I take one more. Perfect, thank you. And as well, like, getting back to the doctors, it's like the gent that said before, like he was talking about how uh, if you don't have fuel, you're going to freeze. If we don't have doctors, we're going to die. Well, certainly people have become more and more sick while waiting to see a physician and maybe thinking and hearing all the stories about the emergency rooms and not wanting to sit there for hours on end to, you know, eventually get to see somebody. Charlie, I'm going to take one quick one here before the news, but I appreciate you making time for the show. Take good care of yourself. You too. Thank you. Okay, man. All the best. Uh, Is Dee going to be able to wait through the news? We'll get the quick bouquet here. Let's go to line number three. Donna, you're on the air. Hi, Donna. Oh, yes. Uh, I I just want to give, I'll uh, throw in a warm uh, thank you to all of the hardworking uh, tree trimmers that are out in force today in the community. And uh, they're protecting all the, I guess, the hydro cables from any damage during the, the fall and the winter. 
because you know how important it is having electricity in your home, that's for sure. Absolutely. I live in a neighborhood with huge maples that they grow so quick. We prune them all you like. They just regrow so quickly that the branches that were amongst the wires and trimmed away last year, they're back. Yes, I, I just feel like I want to uh, get out of my uh, pajamas and get my clothes on and get out there and help them. <laughs> you can help with the clean-up, flick them in the, in the, what do they call that machine, the mulcher, is it? Yes, yeah. it is. Yes. Well, uh, that's all I have to say because uh, I'm still thinking about getting it into some uh, garden clothes and get out there. Why not? Is it a great day for it? Yes. Okay, then. That's it. Thanks, Donna. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, and this is uh, from the good folks over at the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, the food bank is still open at 775 Topsail Road, the old Mary Queen of the World Church, and now the Calvary Baptist Church, operating from Tuesday to Friday at 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Their phone number is still the same. It's 364-7140. They're also taking registration for families who would like to get a Christmas hamper. So there you go. St. Vincent de Paul Food Bank at 775. Tops Road, the old Mary Queen of the World Church, and now Calvary, Calvary, that, is that how you say that? Uh, Calvary Baptist Church, operating from Tuesday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 10.30, and you can indeed register for a Christmas hamper. Phone number is 364-7140. Time for a news break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. D, you're on the air. Morning, buddy. Morning to you. It's me first time calling in. Welcome to like the show. To talk about, thank you very much. I'd like to talk about uh, Doug Snellgrove, that RNC officer charged with sexual assault or rape, whatever he's charged with. Been convicted of. Yes, but he's uh, having another trial. He's fighting to get a fourth trial. Well, he's, he's Actually, I think his lawyers are fighting for a stay. Of proceedings, so he's looking to walk away. Well, he shouldn't walk away, Patty. Well, he's been convicted anyway, so we'll see what yeah. the outcome here well, is. But yeah. Well, I really want to talk about Patty. There's no justice in Newfoundland. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, they had a female crown prosecutor there. She was uh, lying for the police, and it was told to the judge long before any of them murder trials or anything, and no one didn't want to listen. And then everybody had to go through all this hardship because of her. And a lot of people are calling the Justice Department. Me, me myself, is one of them. They're telling us there's no money. They don't want to open up no trials to retrial anybody's, any of her cases. But yes, they could. They got to pay for three trials for him. It don't make sense to me, Patty. Yeah, the the Doug Snellgrove issue. So, of course, the first two trials were thrown out on what was referred to as errors made by the judge, then convicted in the third trial, and now appealing what they consider to be a harsh four-year sentence. So I don't know where this is going to land. And, you know, I've had people say he shouldn't be allowed to even have this uh, entertained. But, of course, it's his legal right to do it, so I don't know how we deny him that. But, anyway... uh, Who's paying for all that, Patty? Well, the who's government. Who's paying for all them trials and who's paying for his lawyers? All them sexual assault victims out there with the church and all that. The government saying there's no money to give none of them. You don't want to open up no other trials. People who never had fair trials. He's getting fair trials. The, uh, us and other people, two or three hundred others, never had fair trials. 
This Crown Prosecutor lied at a lot of trials, murder trials, robbery trials, shoplifting trials, and she gets to walk away. She don't, uh, when we go to the court, we're given a Bible, and we were told to swear on that Bible to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But yet you got police officers and Crown Prosecutors coming in the lawn against you to put you away. That's not a fair trial. But they can't open it because he says there's no money there. The government haven't got no money, but they got money for, to help their own. That don't make sense to me, Patty. Yeah, we're no. People of that island. We're, we're, we're people. We're residents of that island. The Justice Department's supposed to be fair without everybody. Absolutely. Not, rule, not certain rules for some and certain rules for police officers or anybody with the justice system. It's who he is. That's why he's getting away with it. And the police were doing that back then, and they're still doing it today. Not well, only him, there's an awful lot of them. But, of course, he hasn't gotten away with anything at this moment in time. He should be in jail for a long time. Well, certainly it doesn't really feel like uh, justice served when there's that type of sexual assault and four years is the outcome. I don't know what the right number is, to be honest with you. But, of course, there's other, uh, well, there's a civil matter now in court also dealing with members of the Royal New Flank Constabulary and alleged sexual assaults. There was just a ruling made yesterday by Supreme Court Justice Peter O'Flaherty regarding a publication ban for an RNC officer who has been named. He will be named, and his name is out there in the news. So I don't, there is now, look, the justice system certainly works for some better than it does for others. There certainly feels like there's a different set of circumstances and ability to exhaust folks if you've got the cash. And you know, for governments and big corporations can exhaust you because they got the money. So they're, they're fair criticisms. And then police officers and that crime prosecutor, she, uh, she's gone out now with a big pension and they're all police officers gone off retired with their big pensions while people like myself had to suffer because of their lies. We never had fair trials, and the Justice Department don't want to open it. Did you spend time in prison as a result? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes, I did. And the worst part about it is the culprits who did it went in witness protection program, and I got I got sentenced uh, for a long time, took away from our children for not reporting it. And they got away with it. It don't make sense because they were working with the police. And that same young girl that's working with the police, she goes right around Canada, working for the police, the police till right up to this day. They lied. They put her in a witness protection. I was 21 years old. They put that girl in the witness protection program and sent her away. And they said that I had the power to find her. And yeah. I'm only 21 years old, Patty. I had no power, that kind of a power, Patty. Okay, and I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about, but how long did you spend behind bars because of that conviction? Oh, I spent a couple of years. They didn't want to give me a bail hearing because they said I, who, who I was and I had the power. I went before that judge and that judge was told what, what she was doing and what the police were doing. And they didn't believe me because of who I was and who my associates were. But yet, all them years later, he came out in the, in the murder trials and everything that she was doing. It. And he still won't bring her back. They still won't bring her back. I phoned to the Justice Department, not only me. The Justice Department secretary told me that the, that the phone lines were overwhelmed with people calling in and asking her to be brought back. And he won't do it. Understood. And if, that, if there was a travesty of justice based on what you say, then that should have never be. And if someone has been found and documented, proven to be complicit in 
unfair trials and people spending time in prison, that person should have not only be taken to task herself or himself, but uh, some review of the, cir- the circumstances that landed you in a prison is certainly, I think, warranted, based on what you're telling me here this morning. Anyway, Dee, I'm going to take another call, but I appreciate the time. I hope you're doing okay. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, buddy. All the best. Have a nice day, bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Heavy day today. Yeah. Every day is a heavy day, says you. It is. Um, I, I want a couple of quick things. Um, the people who are, so many people are really struggling with the oil. I, I, I spent a fair bit of time trying to figure out how we can help them heat their homes. And, and a lot of people may not be aware of it, but within Take Charge, not only is there uh, is a rebates that the provincial government, the federal government are, are offering, but directly Take Charge will finance um, insulation up to five thousand dollars over five years, mini splits um, up to $10,000 over five years, and also service upgrades if necessary. And I, you know, I, I thought a lot about it. I was, I was always a big advocate for pushing people to just convert from oil to uh, to mini splits. And of course, you need to have another source of electricity. So you put it, you know, a lot of times you put in a few baseboard heaters as, a, as, as, your, as your primary, so that in case your mini splits fail. Um, <clears throat> however, you know, there's, you know, for a lot of people, if that involves a, s- a service upgrade or, or uncertainty or it's just too much to, to bite off, uh, keeping the oil furnace in and just putting in one mini split in your home could make a huge difference a- as well. Yeah, even some rebates are helpful if you've got the cash to instigate the project yourself. And some of the conversion uh, dollars associated with moving from uh, oil heated uh, power or pardon me, heat in your home to an alternative, it's a big price tag. And it's fine to have a subsidy at the end when you can get some money back from government, but it's still way out of reach for an awful lot of folks. Like I say, but though within Take Charge, they will finance it for you as long as you get a proper installer and you go through the you, you do an application. Like I looked at it, if you if you spend five thousand on a mini split and put thousand thousand dollars into maybe uh, attic insulation, they'll finance it over five years. It'll add one hundred twenty five dollars and eighty six cents to your bill per month, but that's got to be way better than what people are, are looking at. I mean, in Newfoundland and Labrador, I did a bit of research on this. On average, Newfoundland and Labradorians who use oil burn, on average, for the year, 207 liters per month. So that's 2,484 liters. The spot price today is $1.74.3, and so that's $4,329. And if, and if you overlay that over to electrical, like I looked, I mean, I have a nice home, but I've insulated well, and I've got a couple of mini splits, but... My annual energy cost, oh, that's everything. That's, that's my appliances. That's everything is $2,050 a year. So, so the investments in, in insulation and in mini splits, and even if you leave your furnace and you take advantage of the take charge uh, financing over five years, I mean, I think, I mean, I, it's like boiling frogs, like everybody's sitting in the pot and it's just boiling more and more and more. And everybody's just looking around at each other, but you know, it's, it's not government's not going to kick the, your door down and start insulating your ceiling, and your attic, and, and throw mini splits on your wall. And, and they can all we can all collectively, we've got to kind of step up. But part of it is, you know, I know there's contractors out there. You know, call around, get some prices. I mean, they're motivated to help you. And if you don't understand it, call some of the experts. And you hear them advertise on your show, but you can just Google it or do whatever. I mean, it, it, you know, the price of energy is only going up, up, up. And you know, 
I, I don't know how people are going to survive the winter when it finally gets cold. I mean, I think about how nice it is and right now what a blessing this is for so many people, but we all know it's it's not going to stay the way it is. Fair enough. Um, I, I want to applaud you for the food bank. That's the same thing that I'm going to be doing with my $500. I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people are going to do what the government should have done, which is take that money from the oil revenue and put it, give it to the people who need it the most. <clears throat> I'm a little bit involved in the St. Vincent de Paul that's down in Corpus Christi that keeps getting broken in. Yeah, twice this year. Um, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, the... Anyway, go ahead. I'll let you continue on. Well, I mean, I just... I mean, you know, you got volunteers, older people mostly. I mean, I'm the youngest person down there, and and I've been down there enough, but, um, you know, you just, like, I just I kind of wrap my head around, you know, you see the people who come, and they, you know, they need it, and, and you know, and now, of course, the church has been bought, and they don't even know where, where, they're, where we're even going to set up, so it's, you know, it's... You know, I, just, I don't. I mean, just some of the stuff's just lost. I'm just, I'm just. I mean, I don't know. Any, I don't have answers for a lot of these problems, other than the fact that everybody collectively needs to try and be part of the solution. That's the only thing I can say because just the, the 40 people in the House of Assembly, I can only imagine how lost they feel most days. And of course, yeah. Anyway. Well, the unfortunate reality here is some of the most down and out and folks who need any type of either for starter short-term assistance but some long-term addressing what brings them to that life circumstance, they're not going to get this money. They haven't filed their taxes. You know, and I'd hate to be speaking in general terms and broad strokes like that, but a lot of those folks, they probably have not filed their taxes. They've been given a grace period to the end of the year to file last year's taxes. But how many of those 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians eligible for one of these checks is not going to get it because they haven't filed their taxes? I mean, and that's and some of those folks, they are the absolute the folks that are the most destitute. But anyway, I'll let you keep going, Tom, before I run out of time. Go ahead. Thanks, buddy. So I want to I want to kind of dive into the the nurses situation because I've I've been again trying to seek solutions, trying to understand how we got where we've gotten and, and what exactly you know how how this system works because we talk about the overtime and we talk about the shortage of staff and so the first thing I wanted to start with was try and explain to people how how nurses work in their schedule because because we talk about these twelve hour days and so generally if you're a permanent nurse. And I don't want to put words in their mouth at all, and I'm sure someone can call and correct me if some of these things are incorrect. But, but basically, they'll a typical. They have a six-week schedule, so typically, they'll a nurse will work Monday, Tuesday. They'll be off Wednesday, Thursday. Then they work Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then they'll be off Monday, Tuesday. Work Wednesday, Thursday, and off Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then it rotates. That's assuming they don't work overtime. And so, traditionally. If they were called, if they were mandated to work or they chose to work overtime on one of the shifts that they were already in, so they work in a 12-hour, and then they would get time and a half. Now, now recently they just changed that, so now if they work overtime on those shifts that they're already working, they get double time. And apparently that's helped. A lot of the contributor to the strain is what, from what I'm hearing, is people calling in sick, and and apparently it's it's a small number of people within the system. And it, and it really turns the thing upside down. That doesn't seem to be part of the public discourse, but, you know, these are people who are just not reliable for whatever reason, you know, and they could have health issues or for whatever reason or, or may not be that reason, but, but that needs to be part of the conversation. And that is contributing to a lot of overtime because basically if a nurse works on one of the days that's not part of that schedule I just outlined, then they pay double time. So if someone calls in sick on Friday and, and Jane goes in and works that Friday, but it's not her normal day, well, she'll do double time. Now, if that nurse has sick leave, the one who called in sick, 
and they don't have as much sick leave as a lot of people may believe, depending on when they started working. But prior to 2006, they had 15 hours for every 162 hours they work. And after that, they have 7.5 hours. So, so when you look at it, 7.5 hours is man, on a 12-hour shift. You know, it doesn't go that far. So a lot of these people are chronic sick, sick leave claimants. They're not getting paid for it. However, if they are permanent, they can go to work on one of these other days and get paid double time and make up for it. But, but you've got this cascading effect of double times where, you know, the nurse who goes in gets double time, but then that person goes double time, and they make the person who was sick makes up for it. Um, so, but, again, it's kind of complicated. But then the other, because it's a six-week schedule, every, um, every six weeks they have um, a drop day, basically, which is the 12 hours because they're technically working 84 hours every two weeks. And then on top of that, of course, another thing, big contributor to, to uh, overtime would be uh, stat holidays. And I always believed that the nurses would get all the same stat holidays as all the rest of the public servants. The public health nurses do, but the rest of them don't. They get nine holidays, and then I'm assuming they get the truth and reconciliation now, too. So they get 10 days. But there are 10, 24-hour days, obviously, that, that accumulates to be a fair bit of money when you overlay it over all the nurses working through through the healthcare system. So, you know, I just kind of just thought I'd just put that out there. And I know there's a lot of pushback from the local nurses about feeling it's a slap in the face, the $3,000 retention bonus that they're being offered versus the incentive for a nurse to move home from New, move home to Newfoundland. You know, $50,000 is a lot of money. However, you know, that's over five years. And that's also to move everything back here. You know, obviously, take your family up. You know, if, you're, if your partner has another job, your children out of school. So I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, apples and apples, you know, that, that, that it should be a slap in the face. I mean, it's $3,000 that you sign a piece of paper and you're going to get $3,000 extra to work another year. They hear the stories coming from their colleagues who are permanent full-time, and they're just simply not interested in that for the sake of $3,000. Uh, well, that's the stories that we're told directly from people in that circumstance. Uh, I'm off to the break, Tom. Appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Okay. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Good. I'm your, I'm your political atheist. Um... Mark on your calendar today. Put a big, big red mark on it. It's the day that it's the day that democracy dies in the United States. And I'll tell you why. You've got a, a lady running for governor of Phoenix, Arizona, and she said on television Sunday that she won't accept the results of the election unless she wins. And there's another guy running for governor who's promising that. Democrats will never, ever win another election if they elect him. Well, you know, we're not far away from, from uh, the, uh, the United States is not far away from losing democracy. It's going to die tonight when you got people like this lady in Arizona, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Lindsey Graham, and others who are in there in, just out there to kill democracy. Well, I mean, it's I, I try not to follow along too much. I find American politics to be absolutely excruciating. The lady you're referring to in Arizona, her name is Carrie Lake. I do know that much. And, you know, what's what really doesn't shine through enough and people latch on to is just the level of hypocrisy. It wasn't that long ago. Carrie Lake was a television personality and reporter and absolutely abhorred some of the Republican policies and Republicans like Donald Trump. Now, all of a sudden, she's an election denier. 
I think I saw a report. 61% of Republican candidates in the midterms uh, deny the results of the 2020 presidential election. It's absolute madness. It really, truly is. And the stock line has been, well, if the Republicans win, the election was fine. If they lose, it was rigged. That is a dangerous way to be talking about stuff. There's just simply no evidence or proof that there was anything stolen back in 2020, yet people latch onto it and they continue pumping that garbage out there. So it really is a bleak set of circumstances there. And I try not to follow the American-style politics uh, too much, but what happens there can happen here. That's the one thing that I do realize is that societally, politically, economically, we've got distinct ties with the United States, and some of what you see there starts to trickle into our politics and our political discourse. But I don't know what the results are going to be tonight, but there's a lot on the line. That much is for sure. There's a lot on the line, and there'll be a lot of buyer's remorse tomorrow. I'm going to tell you that much. Uh, and as a Chicago Blackhawks fan, I wish they'd have the same attitude towards NHL hockey. You know, if Chicago loses a game, we won't accept the uh, results. And if we go with that idea, I tell you, Chicago is going to win the Stanley Cup many, many years, Paddy. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, another point I want to make, another issue, is that I'm sick and tired, and tired and sick about politicians, especially Republican politicians, and now conservatives here in Newfoundland and uh, on the mainland, talking about inflation. And they're blaming on Trudeau, and they're blaming on Fury. You know, you know Patty, I'm going to tell you, I don't think anybody in, in, the, in, in Canada knows what inflation is. Now, my brother was a, a university professor at Western Ontario, and he knew quite a lot about the economy, and he explained to me once what inflation really is. I don't think anybody really knows what it is, and they're expecting Trudeau to fix it in Canada. Well, but why can why is Trudeau going to fix it in Canada when the rest of the world is having a problem and can't figure it out? So I wish that the politician would explain to us what inflation really is, because if they don't, then they don't know anything more than I do. So good morning, Patty. We'll, we'll talk to you later, and we'll see what happens in the States. And perhaps, uh, perhaps the NHL can learn something from what's happening in the States. And to all your fans out there who may be Toronto fans and Chicago fans, there's a way that we can win the cup for the next 20 years. <laughs> Appreciate the time, Brian. Thank you. Good morning. Take care. Bye-bye. Look, and I guess some people are absolutely obsessed with American politics because it is an absolute gong show. Uh, it truly is. And, you know... The, the thoughts and the concepts, and maybe some people consider them exaggerations about democracy on the line and stuff. There's a lot on the line in the United States today. There's no question about that. And the whole bit, I'll inevitably get pummeled by the same handful of folks, whatever there's someone brings up American politics and the 2020 election and the thought shared by a lot of people, which is unreal, that it was actually rigged and stolen. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that makes it dangerous, right? You know, politics shouldn't lead to the inevitability of danger and violence. Have you seen some of the pictures of the well-regulated militia armed to the teeth at the ballot boxes and stuff? I mean, what is going on? I'm going to get another one before the break. Let's go to line number five. Diane, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. It's a beautiful day, but a windy day. It is lovely out there. I can't wait to get out in it. (laughs) 
I'm calling regarding uh, the $500 payments that's supposed to be coming out to Newfoundland individuals. Yes, that's right. I don't know if I misunderstood this morning that you mentioned, did you mention that somebody had gotten it or I wasn't quite understanding? I've heard from three people. They say they did get it uh, this morning in their bank account. So if you had direct deposit already organized with the Canada Revenue Agency, that's how you're going to get it. If you didn't, you're going to get a check in the mail. But three people told me they got it. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you didn't know... uh exactly when it's coming out other than the fact that three people did get it no i don't know but we did we were told that it was coming out uh this week so i don't know if it's all going to be on one day or it's going to be peppered throughout the week and i can only tell you what these three people told me is that they did get it and my darling yeah Yeah. and that's the individuals like if it's two two seniors in a home but did their taxes that's individual five hundred dollars that's right yeah it was all based on individuals 18 and over based on your tax filings of last year that's exactly right okay well thank you very much and you have a great day you too diane take care bye guys all right bye-bye yeah uh so there's that let's see here let's take a break when we come back we're talking about safety in the fishing industry and the seal summit location secret what's going to come of it anybody's guess don't go away join brian medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels newsmakers weather and more join us on your vocm at noon welcome back let's go line number one say good morning to the president of the ffaw that's keith sullivan hiya keith you're on the air yes good morning to you patty morning to you uh so i wanted to start off um some people may know that the Newfoundland and Labrador Fish Harvesting Safety Association had a symposium last week. So this this group has been dedicated to you know promoting uh, safety, more safety awareness in the fishing industry, and you know congratulate Brenda Greenslade staff and the board, who is made up of a number of industry uh, groups, certainly including the FFAW. Um, we're able to get back together in in room again after certainly a couple of years and you know talk all things safety they had great participation and of course i think one thing that people who will attend uh, who attended would uh, would remember would be an address from uh, Jeanette Russell from Labrador mother of Mark Russell uh, who was who was lost off the coast last September with his crew member and friend uh, Joey Jenkins and talking about safety uh, at sea and particularly the need for more search and rescue capability in, in Labrador. Yeah, we had Jeanette on the show last week, you know, talking about you know, while grieving, trying to make a positive difference for other people who make the sea their home for their living, you know, fish, fish harvesters in particular, is quality, brave, tour de force kind of stuff. Well, I, she was something else on this program, and hopefully she's being heard. You know, I, I really think so. Uh, one thing is to be heard, but, I mean, it just makes uh, so, made, so much sense. You look at that vast coastline without any of the uh, the search and rescue case of, uh, capabilities and infrastructure there, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's a, an obvious gap that must be addressed. You know, I, I think it makes all the, all the sense in the world, and I think right now there's a lot of focus on it, and, you know, certainly thanks to, to Jeanette, obviously, and her family and friends and supporters, that was a, was a difficult time. Now, obviously, there's you know, a lot of other things we can do to support safety, like... Uh, 
the Harvesting Safety Association had a, a personal locator beacon campaign to make it available to harvesters at a discounted price or something that, you know, uh, basically instead of uh, the searching part, uh, it, when you got a... Uh, something happens at sea, it's all about the rescue then. So a piece of life-saving equipment that can be made available, and now that group are making it available to people at at, uh, at reasonable prices. Because, I mean, it is relatively expensive. So there's all kinds of things uh, we can do, and I think uh, give credit to that, that group. And, you know, obviously, I think uh, particularly the work that uh, Jeanette Russell and her family are doing highlighting safety issues too. Absolutely, you know, so it's all-encompassing. It's the length of the vessel, it's the search and rescue capacity. I know that there's been a good investment in ground search and rescue, an increase from $191,000 a year to $1 million a year. Three new groups trying to be established in southern Labrador, but Labrador with twice the coastline of, as the when compared to the island. There's 11 search and rescue assets in this province, all on the island, including four fast rescue craft, zero in Labrador. There's something patently wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So I can't stress it enough that we need action. The time now, it'll be an interesting week. We have the, the minister and staff and others who will be in town for uh, for the SEAL Summit this week. So, you know, I'd expect that the minister will, you know, have people directly talking to her about that. And obviously a lot of other things which we hope to do over the next uh, next couple of days. I know SEAL will be on the agenda for, for many. And, you know, I think it's good that are getting some level of awareness but I mean I think most people are going to uh, really look at what the what the actions are coming out of it. But know, what could they talk. be? I'm a little confused by the SEAL conversation at this stage, I have to say, Keith. You know, whether or not the conversation is simply over or not, I don't know. But talking about market development, I mean, aren't we marketing where we can, where it's being allowed, you know, whether it be based on ridiculous decisions made at the World Trade Organization about the importation of sealed product, meat, oil, or otherwise. I mean, talk about innovation in the sector. What, like, what are we even really talking about here? I think as a, as a number of things. I mean, it is a government in particular and individual commitment to, uh, to, to doing something. We have an opportunity. We have a resource and there are products that I think people would want. There's a lot of artificial trade barriers, like you talked about, I mean, going to Europe and the United States. So I think a whole of government approach is when these things arise, is more aggressively dealing with these countries internationally to deal with them, and rather than just stand uh, stand by and be, be bystanders as people lose their opportunities, lose livelihoods. So it's about, I think, that investment in market access uh, for us, a lot of the harvesters we're talking to was just about the acknowledgement of what has been done to the ecosystem, just how much you know other fish species are being harmed by just the overpopulation of seals, whether that's grey seals in the Gulf or harps uh, in uh, in North more so. So, if, I mean, it's going to be difficult to have quick fixes, but there needs to be a a long-standing commitment to dealing with this and not just, you know, talking about things. I mean, I think there needs to be longer-term structures and focus put in place, you know. So it's easy to be cynical of, uh, you know, government coming here, but, you know, I, I'll take it to be I'll, I'll be more optimistic, I hope, the fact that they are here and talking about it. And we'll certainly encourage them to do some work on those market access, support people. I think there's more products that can be uh, byproducts that can use the entire animals, whether it's here or sell internationally. So I think we have options. 
yeah, I suppose we do. But, you know, unless there's an expansion of a market and we don't take the entirety of the quota now. So the conversation sometimes boils back to as simple as trying to determine what is the healthy eco ecosystem balance and if there's a call for call's sake because other than that unless there's a, some sort of mysterious magical market expansion all of a sudden then that's basically what the conversation boils back to as far as i can tell anyway yeah so the market expansion and those things i think the opportunities are there and i talk to people whether it's oil uh things with the uh with, with the pelts or other products, even meat kind of underutilized. And I know the people here were seeing, uh, particularly dog food uh, things, been uh, been been trying to be developed. So that their opportunities, I think, are there. Just need some uh, real support. So I think you can grow the market. And I mean, recognize that it probably won't quadruple overnight. But I mean, like anything, we're really looking for long-term, sustainable solutions. So. You know, hopefully there's some of that here. I think people in the industry, uh, people I talk to are really optimistic about it and see opportunities, but there are a few hurdles, and I guess that's what we'll be discussing over the next uh, next two days here in St. John's with people from mostly across the country, but from around the world as well. Let's see what becomes of it. Uh, you know, even with the absence of well, a couple of things, DFO has a funny way of talking about seals, and I have had a couple of the DFO scientists send me some information talking about biomass of seals versus head count of seals. I'm trying to wrap my mind around all of it to just have a better understanding. But, you know, they talk about the issue of predation in the Gulf differently than they talk about or, or in, the, in St. Lawrence uh, versus how they talk about it off our shores. What difference is it? I mean, the seals have a very similar diet, regardless if they're swimming in the Gulf of St. Lawrence or off the coast of the island. Like, I, I don't really know the point that they're trying to make when they have that disparity between the thoughts on seals. But anyway, uh, I do appreciate when the DFO scientists do try to send me some information, and it doesn't come across as if they're trying to convince me of anything. They just give me data which I think I do find helpful. I'd like a bit of info. Uh, makes the world go around in my sphere. Uh, uh, last word to you, Keith. Anything else we want to talk about this morning? Uh, no, for, that's it for right now. But, I mean, we, uh, you know, hopefully, say, the, the Minister of uh, Fisheries for Canada is, is in the province. Anytime uh, you're able to get out of those buildings in Ottawa and everything else, I think, you know, get a taste for what people are really living their concerns. So hopefully she has dozens of conversations with, with people who, you know, quite frankly, have been pretty frustrated by some of the manage, management of, of fisheries. You know, seals certainly been one, but you look at mackerel and uh, low quotas in some of the other uh, things like uh, like uh, cod, for example, people looking to get access to, to redfish who are living on the shore here. So hopefully a lot of those conversations happen along the way this week, too. We know we'll be certainly advocating for members and the fishing community in the province. Yeah, it's hard to manage the Newfoundland Labrador fishery from Kent Street, Ottawa. And maybe next time we'll talk about the fact that they're actually going to do something legislatively regarding rebuilding of stock. When a stock has been identified to be in jeopardy or in peril, whatever the phrase is they're using, they've just added 62 more stock to the uh, 30 that were already announced, where there's a legislative requirement for formalized rebuilding play. So that makes sense. And so wonder that wasn't in place for years prior. Uh, good to have you on, Keith. Appreciate the time. Always good. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Derek Moore from the Murphy Center. The Murphy Center does good work. We'll hear about their ongoing campaign from Derek after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, 
the annual Inspiring Lives Appeal launches tomorrow, the 9th of November, goes on to the 7th of December. And this is, of course, to donate and inspire to aspire a life for one of the folks that use the Murphy Center for whether it be academic services or career services. Join us on line number two as the development coordinator at the Murphy Center. That's Derek Moore. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Hi, Derek. We got him potted up there, Greg Smith. Derek Moore on line number two. You're on the air. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put Derek on hold here for a second. So, Greg, you want to just pick up and see if he's there, and we might have a connection issue in here. Look, the Murphy Center does pretty important stuff. There are some 800 people that are served by the Murphy Center every single year. They first opened back in 1986. Thousands of folks that have gone through the doors have been able to find opportunities to uh, enhance their skills and their training, whether it be academically, get some career services. So the Murphy Center and this annual Inspiring Lives Appeal is important. Let's see if we can get Derek on too. Derek, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Sorry about all that uh, little bit of confusion, but we're back. No problem at all. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. So right off the bat, before we get into some of the specifics, uh, the offerings at the Murphy Center, what does the Inspiring Lives Appeal look like this year? Well, uh, there are a couple of things going on. Let, let me give you a little bit of a preamble by saying all of our programs that we offer come from targeted pots of money. And so we uh, don't have wiggle room and uh, the, we, we must fulfill the mandate of that funding partner for that particular program. So the, this year we are really focusing on trying to put uh, in place uh, a sum of money that will enable us to respond quickly and efficiently to emerging things. Uh, an, an example of that would have been at the outset of the pandemic when the whole technology thing uh, happened and in the sense that everybody needed to work from home and all of that. Well, we had to pivot really, really quickly and try to find means uh, to, uh, to fulfill that particular need. We don't know when the next need is coming or what it's going to be, uh, but we do need to have uh, some reserve money on hand to be able to address it. For instance, when we talked last year, uh, I think last year was the first, was the inaugural campaign? Am I no, remember that correctly? It would have been, no, I think this is number four. Okay, well, the years all kind of blend together in this chair. Uh, okay, so good stuff. Give us an example of some of the programs or people or issues that you were able to deal with in a nimble fashion because of this particular campaign. Well, again, we don't particularly know what's coming down the pipe. We just need the we need the capability to respond when it comes to us. Uh, but you know, we have uh, coming through our doors. We have over 800 participants uh, every year, and um, in those uh, in that number of people, you have folks that have different needs uh, along the way. And we try, and these are personal needs, um, and we try our very best to attend to them and to and to provide what they may need. It may it may mean for example, um, it may mean food, it may mean clothing, it may mean dental assistance, it may mean all kinds of things uh, for their well-being. So, uh, you know, you, you can put somebody in a classroom, uh, but if, if, the, if, if their other needs are not met, their basic needs are not met ahead of that, uh, they can't function very well. So we, we really uh, try to uh, take the whole person, uh, and, uh, and obviously our mandate is, is education and, and career development, uh, but beyond that, we want to 
attend to the, the person as an individual. Fair enough. Give us an idea what you do. You know, some people think it's basically you can go down and get your high school credit uh, completed at the Murphy Centre, but there's a lot of stuff. So let's deal with academic programs. What specifically is being offered at the Murphy Centre? Uh, a number of things. I'm glad you asked me. Number one, uh, the Murphy Center offers the high school credit program. So there are all kinds of young people who don't make it in the regular system for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, they may have been out of school for a year or a year or two, uh, and they've gotten far behind and they can't catch up. And uh, they need the kind of assistance that we can provide for them uh, to help them sort of get back on a footing and, and move forward. Uh, so that's that's one. That, and the other one to talk about is the adult basic education program. So somebody may, uh, again, uh, left uh, school years ago uh, and gone to work and been gainfully employed, and all of a sudden uh, somebody comes along to them and says, uh, you know, we, we, you're a good worker and we'd like to promote you, but we have to make sure that you have that piece of paper. And so you have to get, go back and do your adult basic education or your GED, as an example. And uh, so and, and also you've got people that are coming to you that are saying, okay, I, I'm in the workforce. I left or left school early. I now realize that I, I, I can do certain things. I want to come back and get my adult basic education uh, so that as a mature student, I can go on into some kind of post-secondary training program. Yeah, and on the, on the academic side, sure. And on the career path, there's one. There's a young person that I know that actually participated in two roads and was yes. hugely successful on the heels of taking up the opportunities at the Murphy Center with two roads. Give us a Cole's notes about how that works. Well, two roads is uh, is is the it comes from that old poem, you know, two two roads diverge in a narrow wood. You remember that one from from when you were in school. I do. Uh, but uh, you know, here's the here's the thing that we have so many persons, uh, age sixteen and up, uh, into adulthood, who come to us uh, and they have uh, a desire to get into the workforce. But they're missing some things. Uh, some might be a 16-year-old on, on the, just beginning the journey. How do I get into this? How do I how do I prepare for an interview? How do I uh, prepare a resume? Uh, you know, uh, what can I do about job shadowing to learn more about what I think I want to do? Uh, all of those kinds of things, and we can help them with that. But we also have, uh, you know, a, a group of immigrants who come to us and are saying, you know, I, I need to get settled. I need to get reestablished here. How can you help me, Murphy Center? And the Two Roads program uh, helps to address that as well. Uh, we also have folks who, uh, you know, are have, have degrees, uh, undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees uh, from various universities that have come to us and, and do come to us. And, you know, these folks need to have a different kind of tweaking. They've got some skills, they've got some abilities, but they don't know how to break into that job market. And so helping them do that is part of our mandate. It's helped a lot of people. Uh, so for folks who would like to make a donation for this year's campaign, where do I go? What do I do? Well, can I tell you two things? Sure you can. One, one is that we currently have on go um, a 50-50 draw. It's our very first time into that particular uh, endeavor. Uh, and we changealife.ca, changealife.ca. Uh, and that is going on 
and uh, yeah, changeoflife5050.ca, sorry. And uh, that goes on until uh, the cutoff is November 21st uh, at midnight, and the draw is on November 23rd. So people can help us that way. If they just want to, uh, you know, they like a game of chance and they want to participate and that turns their crank, we'd love to have them participate with us. The appeal itself... Uh, the appeal itself, as you said in your preamble, kicks in tomorrow, and it goes until December the seventh. And so they can, people can go to our webpage, www.murphycenter.ca, and hit donate, and they will see a category there called annual appeal. That's where we would ask them to contribute because that gives us the ability then to have a pool of money to respond to emerging needs. Derek, appreciate the time. Good luck with this campaign this year. Keep up the good work at the Murphy Center. Thanks a lot, Patty. Appreciate your time. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Derek Moore, Development Coordinator at the Murphy Center. Quick check with the producer. How are we doing on the telephone? Today might be a good day to get on the show after this particular newscast. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Okay, quickly. I don't know about how someone got 500 bucks today. I just don't, right? It's not my responsibility. I don't work for the government. I don't have any authority to send out $500 checks. Whether or not it was a home heating rebate or part of the inflation package, I don't know. All I can tell you is three people told me they got 500 bucks today. That's it, the end. If you didn't get it today, then maybe it was home heating rebate that someone got, fair enough. I responded to two of them to ask if they were in line for the home heating rebate of $500. They're yet to respond. So. Don't be checking your bank account all day thinking that I told you you're getting 500 bucks because I don't know. I just don't know. And I haven't checked my bank account today because a bit busy here. And I do half-heartedly apologize for not replying to people in the blink of an eye on uh, every single message I get on Twitter. But anyway, that's the information as we have it so far. We'll see what we can do to confirm or to clarify who and how and why someone got 500 bucks today. All right. The issue up in Happy Valley Goose Bay brought on some interesting reaction. I'm not really sure how people heard the comments this morning, but the concept of police protection, police safety, public safety and patrols. Yes, if there's some 80 transient people living on the trail network in Happy Valley Goose Bay and the residents had a big protest or gathering or rally over the weekend to talk about what they're seeing. Of course, when the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, says, they don't want to criminalize mental health-related matters and or addictions matters. Everyone, I think, understands that concept. But talking about enhanced social services and dealing with the root cause issues as to why these 80 people find themselves in this homeless circumstance is not as quick and or as available in the immediacy of availability for police presence. So absolutely. People, politicians, municipal leaders, individuals have to work towards understanding how these 80 people find themselves there, why they're there. But that's not something that you can be done overnight. It's simply not. As much as it would be great if it was, uh, something that you can simply flip a switch. But what the residents are really basically asking for, and I don't know how this comes across as anything other than, you know, just trying to chronologically put forward steps as to how you deal with public safety matters. The police and their resources are stretched thin. We all know that to be true. If 
public safety by enhanced patrols is going to be effective. At the exact same time, we can twerk, work towards some of the other issues regarding enhanced social services and understanding root causes, any systemic problems that may indeed be present in some or all of the 80 people living on the trail network. So yes, the police absolutely can do a lot right away uh, to ensure public safety. And you know it to be true. Nothing slows you down on the highway like the spotting a police cruiser. Nothing stops you from potentially doing something criminal in nature if and when you see police right there where you are. And if that doesn't mean that they're going to criminalize anything. It just means that the public safety, the mantra of pr protect and serve, is important here. And if you're up in Happy Valley Goose Bay this morning, and this is not an opportunity uh, to take a swing at somebody, verbally take a swing at somebody, regarding the fact that they're living on that trail network. It's just what are you seeing? And if you attended that rally and you want to talk about policing, uh, in conjunction with dealing with enhanced social services, that's the only thought here. It's not that you can't have one or the other. It's that you can have both at the same time. One can happen right away. The other, a lot more complicated and requires a lot of effort for whether it be public policy and or human resources to be in place, in places like Happy Valley Goose Bay to deal with their particular concerns. Also, the mention of the federal health care transfer dollar. Every province, every territory has been asking or demanding that the federal government increase the health care transfer dollar. It looks like the feds are ready to do exactly that. At this moment in time, even though it's provincial jurisdiction, 22% of health care spending is attributed to the federal government health care transfer dollar. The provinces are asking for a stable, maintained 35%. Now, of course, there's a difference across the country with the amount of money spent on health. Some of it related to population, obvious, the obvious things, right? Geographical concerns. Some, some of the curious takeaways there, though, is the uh, federal health minister hasn't said for sure, his name is Yves Duclos, exactly how much money will be increased in the transfer dollar, but he's talking about how it's got to be spent. And yes, we've even had bilateral agreements between the province and the federal government on tailor-made uh, health care transfer dollars. A couple of years ago, it was all about mental health and long-term care. Now the minister responsible, Duclos, says, is use the money to address common key health indicators. No real expansion on exactly what that means. I kind of think it makes reference to the social determinants of health, which we've heard a lot about in the recent past, given the work that the health accord has done, but also towards building a world-class health data system for the country. At the same time where we have the health data, we've had a Meditech hack in this province. You know, Sobeys yesterday said there was some sort of information technology interruption or something. Not going all the way down the path of saying that they were hacked, there was a cyber attack, ransomware or otherwise. Yesterday, Maple Leaf Foods uh, told us that they were attacked, cyber attack. So billing a healthcare data system you know, it's in large part some of the concerns that was voiced by Michael Harvey, the Information and Privacy Commissioner for this province, about Bill 20, which was all about the amalgamation of four regional health authorities into one health authority. So the, some of the concern was the compilation of personal health information and how that was going to be done and how it was going to be stored and how it was going to be utilized and who could have access to it. So obviously there's a privacy concern when we talk about people's personal health info. So when the minister federally says working towards a world-class health data system for the country, just talk about the unbelievable importance of making sure that gets done right.
because Meditech is a great example. Cybersecurity experts right across the country, even some of them said that the hack here in this province was a national security issue. And I think they're not wrong, especially if we're talking about uh, the creation of a national database for health information. So there's a lot of moving parts to that, but I guess the good news for the provinces and the territories is that the federal government says now they are prepared to increase the subsidy for the provinces and territories. And there was recently amendments made to the Wildlife Act here in the province. Some good news here, you know, it's all in an effort apparently to improve access to outdoor experiences and resources. That's a pretty big catch-all, no doubt about it. What they're trying to do with these particular amendments is to build on the good work and the change that was made for hunters to be able to donate their game meat to the food banks. So they're trying to streamline whatever the bureaucratic process looks like today for those big game hunters to make sure they can donate to registered food banks, provide their ministerial authority for uh, residency requirement criteria for members of law enforcement and the military. So to make it easier and to understand the documentation for the butchers who are licensed to participate in this, the food banks, the clients of the food banks, and of course, yes, the hunters who make the donations to third parties. It's always been kind of strange when, you know, things like there was rules surrounding uh, chopping up some firewood and whether or not you were allowed to give that to the elderly lady living on your street. But these types of approaches to put more organic protein product like caribou or moose or whatever into a food bank for people to take advantage of, that's only a good thing. But it's got to be efficient and streamlined. So some of those amendments may indeed achieve exactly that. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Oh, one thing. People are mocking <laughs> some comments coming from, in particular, St. John City Councilor Jamie Korab that was in the news this morning about the importance of keeping your dog on a leash. I don't know how it's wrong to encourage people to do what the bylaws say you have to do. There are nine dog parks to have some off-leash opportunity, and dog owners really would like to be able to have a place for their dog to stretch their legs. Totally get it. There's a park behind my place where some of the neighbors, they do indeed let their dog have a run, chase a tennis ball and otherwise, you know, fair enough. But in some of the other public areas, like around the, some of the trails, Every now and then, I try to take a walk around Kent's Pond. One day last week, two dogs came around like a bat out of hell and kind of caught me off guard. It was very close by where I duck out to where I park in the Confederation Building parking lot. So I never did see the owners first and last. But it's not silly to suggest that a bylaw like keeping your dog on a leash is a worthwhile reminder because it's this time of year in particular where some of the ball fields the soccer fields you know the season has come and gone so they're nice big green spaces and you know they're fenced in so it feels like a good spot to let your dog have a whirl but some people, believe it or not, are kind of afraid of dogs. And also part of the bylaws with having a dog uh, out around the city, I love dogs, is to clean up after them. Now, Mr. Korab, I think, has taken a few swats making uh, mention of some of the health concerns associated with dog feces. But, yeah, the bylaws are pretty clear on that front. So, anyway, you want to take that on, you can do it after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Yeah, I just called it. You know, the public, uh, there's a lot of these garbage cans blowing around in the roads. So me and my mind let you drive, uh, driving traffic in all public. The garbage cans all over the road, blowing in the middle of the road. Standard operations, boy, isn't it? Because, you know, for most people, you put your garbage can out. I do like the automated system now with the hard black case or container. But if you put it out and you go to work and the truck comes by and empties it, with the wind out there today, it happens all the time. My neighborhood is famous for it. Okay, just let you know. Yeah, good on you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, because they, you know, of course, they're on wheels. So when the wind grabs it, they can be shuffled up and down the street or uh, tipped over and out in the road very, very easily. One of my neighbors has a couple of cinder blocks <laughs> that they put in so they can avoid the potential or reduce the likelihood of their container blowing around. But, hey, yeah, keep your eyes open for a black object impeding your travel. Let's go to line one. Jill, you're on the air. Hi, I'm the first-time caller, so I'm a little bit nervous. You take your time. Go right ahead. <laughs> I'm calling. It sounds kind of insignificant to what other people uh, are going through today, but it was, you know, um, anyway, I'll just tell you. We were, about two or three weeks ago, we went in to um, bring our son into the Janeway, and we're c- coming in from uh, Clarenville, right? So we go in, and um, we had to bring our dog in, so we dropped them off with uh, a family member. And we went in kind of early. I guess we left around 7.30 because our appointment was at 11. So we dropped the dog off 9.30, got over to the hospital around, oh, I don't know, 10 to 10 or so. Anyway, the appointment was at 11, so we were drive- We went in, and you could just tell that the parking lot was, like, chock full. It was a beautiful day, and you could just see people driving around, driving around. But we went in, the gate opened up, whatever, and we drove around and drove around. And finally, about, I don't know, it was about 20 to 11, um, my husband had to let my son and I out so he could drive around because we didn't want to be late for our appointment. And um, he never got parking first nor last, and he missed our son's appointment with specialists, which was a pretty important um, appointment, and it's basically like family-focused therapy that we needed to be both there together. And, um, yeah, he drove around everywhere and drove around Mon, drove around, you know, and finally, you know, he just had to give up and uh, miss the appointment. And when I mentioned it to his specialist, I said to her, you know, it was really, you know, upsetting that he couldn't, his father couldn't be here because it's very important that he um, attends these appointments. And, um, you know, we talked about the parking issue and she, you know, she just agreed and both, you know, said that once the the mental health hospital is up and running, it's going to be even worse. A hundred percent. Parking has always been a concern in that area, you know, whether it be the contribution of MUN staff and students and or staff and patients and visitors at the health sciences and the Janeway. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when the mental health and addictions facility is, is up and running and open. Because if I remember correctly, a couple of years back or maybe pre-pandemic, when the parking became, you know, more and more focused problem, they actually had valets. People would be there and take your vehicle for you and, you know, continue to whirl around. I'm pretty sure that's true over at the Health Sciences Center, but it's a mess over there. The last time I went, I simply got lucky. I went through the gate and lo and behold, right in front of me, someone was pulling out. I kind of felt bad knowing that someone absolutely had been driving around in circles for a long time before I just got absolutely lucky and found a, a spot very quickly. But it's a mess over there. It really is. Yeah, and I mean, everybody was driving around trying to go for the same spots. The handicapped parking, they were all full. Not that we would park there, but I was just observing, you know, other people, you know, um, elderly people and people who who needed that parking. That was all full. And we were just all driving around, like, <laughs> going for the same thing with no results. And it kind of upset me a little bit because, you know, here we are coming in from out of town, gave ourselves plenty of time. And to be driving around the parking lot for an hour, 
And if if I had come in by myself with my son, I don't know what I would have done. Mm-hmm. Right? Driving around like my husband went off and he wasn't very happy um, about it. But uh, anyway, it looks like we got to go in now on a monthly basis. So I think next time, I, if if the appointment's early in the morning, we don't seem to have an issue. But if it's like mid-morning, like 11 o'clock or 10.30, like it's very difficult. So we'll probably just park somewhere and get a cab and or over at the over at the mall or something. <laughs> yeah, people have gone to great lengths to try to find a convenient spot to park all the while, maybe not as convenient as parking in the actual hospital parking lot, but having to go wherever to pull in. Uh, I don't want to pry into your own personal matter, so feel free not to answer this, but can you tell me what kind of therapy we were, we were talking about, the appointment? Well, um, I'll, I'll just say that it's, uh, it's something for my son, and it's got to do with... Um, the eating disorder clinic. Okay. And when you're dealing with youth and and um, those kind of disorders, you need, especially with youth, you do more of a family focused therapy rather in, than like an individual, like you would see in the Hope program, the adult program. So uh, yeah, so it's it's very important that you know both parents or any loved ones or caregivers attend um, with the child, right? It sounds like it to me, absolutely. So um, anyway, it's pretty important, and it's pretty important to us. It sounds minuscule to some other people's issues, but... Uh, no, it's absolutely anyway. not. It's it's absolutely important, and that's the thing I try to remind listeners of potential callers of all the time. You can hear people talking about the biggest issues under the sun on this show, but if it's something that's important to you, it's important enough for me. And we're talking about a medical appointment and something as what you think would be as simple as pulling in your vehicle uh, to be able to make the appointment on time. That's important, and I'm glad you called on it. Well, thank you. And it was so funny because when we, I just closed off with this, as we got there early, my son was like, oh, how come we got to be here so early? <laughs> and I was like, for this reason, we, you know, we need parking. So uh, anyway, it was, it was funny at the time, but uh, not so funny now. Anyway, thanks for your time and uh, love listening to the show. I'm glad you called and thanks for tuning in, Jill. Good okay, luck. Thanks. All right. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. You know, it also reminds me of the fact that uh, it wasn't that long ago that I think it was Todd Badcock, right, leading the charge saying that it's a contravention of the Canada Health Act to be charging for parking at the health science center. I don't think that went anywhere. And then someone has asked me to start talking about the amount of private health care already in the system and the potential to expand it. I'm not even sure if this person thinks it's a good or bad idea to further expand the private offering because we know the, the public system is absolutely overwhelmed. And I've got a person in mind who talks about it on the national level. And they do, I don't think they come across as all in or all out on the issue. Just to paint the picture of what privatization, further privatization, because there's already private offerings in the country, what further privatization might mean the good, bad, and the ugly. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the topic is absolutely up to you. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the CEO at Food First NL. That's our friend Josh Smee. Josh, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Before we get into the topic that we want to discuss regarding the price of food in Labrador, how are the pop-up markets going? 
They're going great. Yeah. So for folks who are who are listening, we uh, we just launched a project called Food on the Move here in St. John's, which is uh, bringing pop up affordable food markets to the community centers around uh, around town. So it's been running since October. Super busy, getting lots of good responses, uh, selling lots of great food. It's it's been really nice to be out there. And that's great. I mean, because when we talk about access, it's not. It's not all about, you know, what kind of product you have available in the shop closest to you. It's how close is the shop to you. It's proximity issues that you're addressing here. So I think that's a big deal, especially when we look at the price at the pump. Okay, Josh, let's go to Labrador. I mean, food insecurity is a big deal right across the province. We know it to be true. But in Labrador, it's its own kindle of fish. You know, people send me all the time, they send me uh, screen grabs or pictures of products on the shelves up there. You know, for chicken wings that I can buy for 10 bucks, they're 40 bucks. And everything that you can talk about the price disparity is absolutely unbelievable give us some of the stats regarding food insecurity in labrador yeah so that's exactly right it's totally different canola fish so you know uh in labrador consistently uh food insecurity is much higher than than on the island part of the province so we know for example like in nanatsiavut which has done some great data collection on this like only under 40 percent of households in nanatsiavut were food secure back the last time that that data was collected it's a majority of households uh, on the north coast uh, are food insecure at any given time uh we don't have as good like uh, data um, for the South Coast or, or for the any communities, for example, but it's probably similar. So the you know more than half of of people living in most of Labrador would be food insecure, and 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 the the intense food prices are, are a big part of that for sure. You know, food insecurity is a complicated matter. We've got some new numbers from Stats Canada about the numbers of families and individuals living in food insecure households, especially when we talk about this province, the number of uh, 18 or 18 and under living in a food insecure house, which is really a staggering and a very dangerous number. But it's complicated, and it's probably even more complicated in Labrador. Give us your understanding of how, how and why it's a much more complicated situation in Labrador versus the island. Yeah, so there's a mix of things. Obviously, the supply chain uh, is complex to get food into Labrador. So uh, that and ever changing, right? So the you know the the opening of the roads, the the changes in how the boat service has worked over the last few years has really shifted things. There are subsidy programs that subsidize food in some cases. So it's it's a bit of a tangle. And then you know once you get food into Goose Bay, for example, moving that food up the up or down the coast is the next thing. The other big piece of it, though, is that food security for for lots of folks in Labrador isn't just about what you can buy in the store, right? Like, uh, and this is true on the island to a lesser extent, but wild and country foods are a huge part of people's diets. They're a huge part of people's culture. And uh, obviously, in the last few years, we're seeing how the climate crisis is playing out really in real time, if you're especially up on the North Coast, right? Like, your access to food is directly connected to whether you can get out on the ice in the in the winter time and there's less time to do that it's connected to how healthy the caribou herd is and obviously you know there's been a hunting ban for some time now because that that herd is not in great shape and so uh you know your the ability to harvest from the land is a big part of food security uh and a really culturally important part of food security for labradorians right and and that's that's under a lot of pressure right now you know the climate is changing way faster in maine than in st john's uh, and so people are living that day to day right yeah 
I mean, you know, add in some, but not only out on the ice, but some of the permafrost, what that's meant for access for hunters and the like. It's really made it a much more different landscape than it was not that long ago. So when you have country food as big as a deal as it is for sustenance and cultural related matters, that makes the approach to any community driven supports or enhancements even that much more difficult to achieve. It does, yeah, but I do think the other side of this is that Labrador is where we're seeing some of the most interesting and, and most innovative work around food access in this province. You know, Labradorians are really leading the way on a lot of this. So most communities in Labrador, for example, have a community freezer. Uh, and it depends, you know, they all work in slightly different ways, but, um, you know, the idea is that the community stocks the freezer with wild foods, you know, meats, berries, those kind of things. And then folks who are in the community who can't get on the land themselves to access it they can go by the freezer and I've, I've been to lots of these places and they're amazing right uh, you know you can pop by and get you know a feed of, of fish or or moose meat often uh, berries all these kinds of things and so those kind of programs which are really like built on this ethic that's that's really strong I think in a lot of Labrador communities around community sharing uh, of food that comes from the land right and so you know uh, to be honest with you lots of communities on the island could use a community freezer and I, I wish we had more more on the go here. So we're seeing things like that happen. Uh, and like Nunatsivit government and Nunatuvit both have, you know, they have paid folks working on food security who are doing some really great programming. So I think the, the flip side of this is it's it's motivating people to try and figure out some some ways around this problem. We're involved right now in a in a big collaborative in Labrador around getting country foods into healthcare, for example. And the, the healthcare system has been so supportive because they see how much it matters to people uh you know in their day-to-day to have that kind of that kind of access i don't know i don't want to put you on the spot i don't know how much you know about some of the subsidy programs in place to try to control the cost of food in labrador the two notables are the airlift subsidy and nutrition north they sounded great in concept they really looked like they were going to work but they have not do you know anything about those subsidies yeah, I, to be honest with you, I don't want to dive into the details either because I don't know enough about them other than exactly what you just said, is that I think by and large it's pretty recognized now that they're not uh, accomplishing what we or what they were meant to do, right? So there is there is some thinking to do about what does a, a subsidy program look like that really makes a, makes, a, makes a dent in this stuff, for sure. And to see that it has the intended outcome exactly. you know, for how it was crafted because obviously the right intentions were in place, but the outcome the furthest thing from uh, I've been talking a little bit well a, a lot about food on this program because I think you know changing our behaviors with how we how and where we drive and that kind of stuff is one thing but the price of food and food insecurity is a bigger problem than ever before in the history of the country uh, certainly in recent memory the concept of community gardens backyard farming and homesteading we've seen an explosion in some communities that have opened their arms to it there's some other municipalities that are struggling with trying to hit the sweet spot so whether it be government initiatives for greenhouses and investment in community gardens. But what's your advice to municipal leaders when we know that so many people are willing and wanting to grow more of their own food, not necessarily have a big herd of cattle in the backyard, but just some backyard farming to help ease the burden on their grocery bills? What's your advice to municipal leaders to try to get it right? 
I think one is that the the best practices are out there, right? Like I I do feel for folks who are leaders in small communities, they've only got so much time to come up with new policies for their town, right? The, the, these these communities not uh, they're not swimming in 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 resources here, and so I think one of the things we see is this is just just kind of one more thing that a town has to think through, and so I think one of the most important things folks can do is look for communities that have have developed. Uh, good systems around this and and do a bit of copy and paste to be honest with you i think one of the things we see is that uh, some of the larger municipalities that have had time to think through this stuff have more developed frameworks around it that that you know solve some of these problems and so yeah go knocking on doors and there are there are smaller communities that have that have done a really solid job i think it's really interesting that we do have this situation in this province where some some communities where you would expect there to be a, a like a very permissive space for example for uh for growing there might not be and that might just be because the the land use rules are are something that that hasn't updated in a while and and so yeah i think you know reach out to others there's lots of folks there to support you the the farming and homesteading community as you well know patty is organized and huge uh in this province and and really willing i think to to participate in 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 developing rules that make sense uh, at the community level. So, yeah, I think there's a lot There's a lot to be done. There are good examples. Locally, there are good examples around the country. It's not rocket science, but it does take a little bit of work. Everything that's worth doing does take a little bit of work and elbow grease. Good to have you on, Josh. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Daddy. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. It's Josh Smee. He's the CEO at Food First NL, and dare I say it, you know, when we talk about baby steps on collaboration or cooperation between municipalities, yeah, you know where I'm going, regionalization. Maybe the approach to community gardens and or small-scale greenhouses can indeed be a shared initiative between smaller communities that are close by each other as opposed to one municipality thinking they have to go it alone. So just some of those things that start us on the path of further enhanced cooperation because obviously it would be good for everybody. If you live in a pocket of the province where there's five or six municipalities in a stone's throw, just imagine if all of that effort and brain power and, yes, combined resources went to creating more and more self-sustaining community gardens and what have you. And it's just another thing where maybe we've got to think a little bigger and josh is absolutely right there are models out there for how it works in best practices in certain municipalities here in the province and around the country so we've got to put that right on the front burner of uh, municipalities because they know as well as or they know better than me a lot of the residents are struggling and more so than ever now given inflationary pressures cost of living I mean, just look at the spike in diesel. You're going to find that on some of the price tags that you encounter in the very near future. One of our truck driving buddies, Tony Power, he showed a photo today to fill up his big rig. He drives a highway transport truck over $2,000. And he says that there's actually, it looks like to him that some of the freight that's not moving is because it's not essential today. So they're only moving around stuff that's got to go. It's got an expiration date or a best before that has to be attended to, but Holy moly, $2,000 to fill up a highway transport truck, a tractor trailer. Wow. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. There's a couple of stories that I read too close to showtime this morning to really wrap my mind around them, but they're 
I'll call it interesting. One was a study uh, done by uh, Oxfam. Everyone knows who Oxfam is. And this was regarding greenhouse gas emissions and who's largely responsible for them. And this isn't regardless of whether or not you're interested in the climate change conversation. It's just neither here nor there. So what they did is they did an analysis of the investments of 125 of the world's richest billionaires. All right. Billionaires. Now, the billionaire conversation is more and more interesting these days, given just how much of the media is controlled by billionaires, whether it be Bezos or Zuckerberg or Musk or anybody else, which is a conversation in and of itself. But here's what they looked at. According to the report, the billionaires investments produce an annual average of three million metric tons of carbon dioxide per person, which is one million times higher than the average uh, 2.76 tons of CO2 for those living in the bottom 90 percent. It's absolutely amazing. Now, they'll make some mention to the fact of private planes or private jets, pardon me, and yachts and the like. But the real focus well, I was having a hard time fully understanding is that the issue is about how they invest their money. So, for instance, there's only one of the, ton- the 125 billionaires that were analyzed that had any investments in a renewable energy company. One of 125. The vast majority of them, uh, let's see here. The study also found that billionaires had an average of 14% of their investments in polluting industries, as they call it, such as energy and materials like cement. One billionaire out of 125 had any investments in a renewable energy company. It kind of sounds hard to believe, even if just for people like me and you, and you go to see... Uh, a financial advisor, and get involved in even an entry-level mutual fund. The whole concept of a diversification, you might have a bit of a bank in one and a bit of a fossil fuel-related company in one. You might have it sprinkled up or diversified with a greener company in one. There's nothing perfectly green, but a greener or alternative energy company inside the same portfolio. You can actually buy full-on green portfolios now insofar as the mutual fund goes, but the billionaires and their gas emissions is really quite staggering. Once again, uh, 125 billionaires had produced a million times higher than the average of those of us living in the bottom 90% of the world. Absolutely amazing. And this story of, will I take this, Dave, or go on to what I was going to talk about? Yep. Okay. Let's go to line number one. Paul, you're on the air. Paddy. Yes. Hi, good morning. Paddy, I have a couple of minutes left. I often wonder, Paddy, all this talk about electric cars. Now, this may be a stupid question, and if it is, feel free to tell me. Paddy, when there's an electric storm outside on the go, you're told to stay away from your living room windows, turn off your television set, and we know that uh, power lines can attract electricity. What about if you're driving down the Transcat on the highway and there's an electrical storm? You're driving an electric vehicle. Could that not be dangerous? Uh, how would it be? I'm sorry. I'm not sure I understand the question, to be honest. Being a, any, uh, an electric vehicle, uh, I've, I've often understood that electricity can attract uh, lightning. Like, for example, turn off your television. Or how often have you seen power, power lines be struck by lightning? And if you're driving an electric vehicle... Would that not attract electricity, the volts? Well, I would imagine the batteries protected from things like that. I don't think I've ever heard a story. Now, we do know there's stories out there where batteries have caught on fire, for instance, and that's an issue that people are worried about. But I don't think I've ever heard of a, a story of one of these types of batteries attracting and being struck by lightning. I don't think I've ever heard one example, to be honest with you. No, I've not heard of I, but I just often wonder, because uh, they tend to uh, attract each other, right? I just thought that would be kind of dangerous if that was the case, though, Patty. <laughs> you know? 
uh, all this talk about electric vehicles. I often heard say, you say uh, yourself, you may think about getting one yourself down the road, eh? You know what? <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, I'm considering, but I'm also waiting for the technology to change, which makes it a little bit more long-lasting, for instance, the battery. The whole concept of the solid-state battery versus the lithium batteries that are currently being used, it sounds like a different and a real game-changer. So while I think many people, like I have a friend who has an electric vehicle, swears by it, loves it, would never buy anything else, I'm just kind of waiting. And some of it's about carbon emissions, but it's also about cost of operating it. Just imagine my buddy in his electric car and versus my internal combustion engine, what it's costing me versus what it's costing him, it looks pretty attractive to me. And not only that, pay the size of them. They're so small. Yeah, that's another benefit for sure. My rig is too big. Now, my, my vehicle is uh, seven or eight years old, which I bought used. But it's coming towards a time where I've got to consider looking for the next vehicle. And I am carefully considering a hybrid or electric vehicle. Absolutely. That's the right way to go. Now, before I go, I've got to ask you one question. Fire away. Pete Susie. Whatever happened to Pete Susie, buddy? What do you mean? Pete's we around. We don't hear from him anymore. Yeah, no, Pete's around. Uh, uh, the last I heard from him, he's running for election here in the province, so some, uh, two years ago or something. I, I don't want to speak for Pete, no. and I, I'm pretty no. sure like, he's still involved in the arts community. That much I do know. My wife ran into him at a run around Kitty Bitty the other day. I believe Pete works for uh, a business arts group that works for the province. And uh, Pete, if I'm wrong, set me straight so I can offer the, uh, the accurate uh, information. But Pete is around. I ran into him at a grocery store some months back. So, yeah, Pete's around. Well, that's good news. I thought he had left the province or something. This no, no. Hadn't heard that. Okay, well, thanks for your time, my friend. Anytime. All Take the best. Care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to three. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Patrick? Very well. How about you? Good. I just uh, heard a few minutes here about electric cars, and as you know, I drive one, and fuel. Uh, two things about them. Number one, no, your electric car won't be subjected to lightning storms. I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, no, there are protections put in there. A good friend of mine, his name is uh, Pavlov. Remember the Pavlov? You ring bell.com. Well, Pavlov's dog, yeah. His name is Kevin. And Kevin was a guy who, who built the electric car for GM. And uh, his offices are down in Rochester Hills in Michigan. He's, I visited him a couple of times. We were good friends. And when he was developing all this, these are the same questions I would ask him. You know, if I go buy your electric car, we get a lightning storm. If I get a like like park and go in somewhere and all these questions will come up all the time so they they were all covered uh i bought my electric car before the price of fuel went skyrocketing but you know the last few days i've been really paying attention to what people are doing across the province and there's so many people sitting on the side of the road in 18 degree temperature with the with the engine idling trucks Buses, cars, pickups, you name it, even the biggest pickup trucks cost, I don't know, 250 bucks or 400 I don't know how much to fill it up, but whatever it is. And, and, and it costs more money to the drivers to idle than it does to actually drive the vehicle. Yeah, one of the boys, you know, I was, uh, was referring to one of the boys, has a new vehicle that actually, when you press the brake and come to a stop, it shuts off. Which Absolutely, I've, and that's the new, and you know, and that's called stop and start technology. Now, there is a little issue with that, and I don't know if that's corrected it yet. But when you go, like, like when the thing shuts off when you're at a red light or you're going through an intersection, so you stop, and it shuts off. Sometimes it does take that extra split second to get going, and by that time, it doesn't give you all that extra energy right away. It takes time for all that combustion to take place. You know, the the, the pistons firing and all that. So you got to be aware of that. I, I've never heard anyone talking about it as a sales rep 
trying to sell the hybrid cars because they're on hybrid cars, right? It doesn't have that effect in, in my electric car. As soon as I touch the thing here, it's just, it just scoots, right? But in, but in your fossil fuel cars, hybrid cars, because you're using it in hybrid mode instead of in gas mode sometimes, it will take that extra second or so to get everything up to uh, speed to get you to an intersection. So you got to be really careful. But uh, it is a good option where we don't have... Uh, you know, all these charging stations at your convenience all the time. But but there are a lot of charging stations around. I just got back from a little trip to the West Coast, and and and, uh, and I went up the Northern Peninsula, and it was fine. There were three charging stations up there along the way, and so you get up there and back down again. And it didn't cost me a dime of fuel. It, I guess it cost me a little bit uh, for the electric yeah, it costs something. Yeah, Sean, simply because we just cleared 12 o'clock, we're actually 12.01. We'll have to leave it yep. at that, but I appreciate the time. Okay, and everyone just stop idling. You'll save yourself some money. Thank you. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. I know one of the biggest cost-saving measures in your ICE is not gunning it from red light to red light. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. We're here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line. Oh, quickly, electric cars are grounded, and, of course, they have rubber tires. <laughs> right? All right, we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.